This is episode 36 of Untangled Faith. Okay, I was at a place where I didn't think I could have any kids at all. Now I have three children and one has a terminal disease. And so how do you wrestle with that? Um, I have had a couple of real life people send me messages and just say like, thank you for explaining this. I feel like I didn't understand. And in a lot of ways, I think this podcast is a bit of a culminating, not that healing is done, but a culminating of telling the story and telling it again. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. For this last episode in this season about grief, Kat, Colby, and Emily are back to tell us what kind of a response they've received to the podcast and what they're up to now. But before I get to them, I wanted to let you hear from my friend, Melissa Hogan. She's been on the show previously, but today she comes as a mom of a child with a fatal genetic disease. There's an awful, beautiful perspective that comes from this life. Here's Melissa. According to my listeners, you are a crowd favorite, Melissa. Your life is not like in separate boxes that have different categories that don't intertwine and intersect with each other. But I do want to introduce a new part of Melissa to the world. And that is your youngest has a rare disease. Yeah. Not just a rare disease, but one that is degenerative. So I would love to hear some of your story of that how you have reconciled this journey. You know, like Kate Bowler says, everything does not happen for a reason. And there isn't always a happy little bow. At least for me to survive, I have to look for meaning. I don't need somebody else to tell me to look for meaning, but I need to look for meaning in order to make sense of horrible things that happened to me. I can't really explain or talk about the grief related to my son's diagnosis without going a few years back. You know, if I have to look at my life and and the things that have made me so acquainted with grief, the, the biggest things would start with like a journey with infertility, which a lot of people have had to deal with. When we started trying to have kids, I had multiple miscarriages, four miscarriages over four years. You know, there's a lot of grief with that. Um, there's the grief of each miscarriage, but then there's the grief of maybe I won't ever have children. And maybe this is a dream that I have to let go of going through that for four years, just wrestled with the Lord in terms of going to not have children and looking at that. Then I was in the stage really of acceptance, to be honest, I was kind of like, you know what, I I guess this is really not going to happen. That's when I got pregnant with my first son. I know there is this terrible advice out there for people who are dealing with infertility, that once you stop worrying about it, that is the magic key to becoming pregnant. Melissa is not saying that here. She's just saying this is the way things worked out in her situation. I didn't know, obviously, since I'd had so many miscarriages, I didn't know if it would actually happen. So you're kind of going along, well, I'm not sure where this is going to be. 
uh, had him. And then within the next two years, had two more kids. So I had, you know, went from having four years of miscarriages to having three children in three years. That's important because, you know, that was really overwhelming um, (laughs) to have three toddlers. They were very energetic. And I was also trying to work from home. You know, I was starting to get like my sea legs with having three kids when my youngest son, uh, you know, he was two and, and, you know, there were other things in the midst there that were challenging. My oldest son had a seizure disorder. So we had some ambulance trips and that was really worrisome. But then my youngest son case was diagnosed at two with a rare genetic disease called Hunter syndrome by rare. I mean, 2000 patients in the world. So yeah, yeah, very rare, ultra rare, you know, there's miracles throughout this story. in the fact that, that, you know, my mom is who diagnosed him after she saw a TV show about Hunter syndrome, the odds of that happening are just so incredibly unlikely. So even the fact that he was diagnosed at that time was pretty miraculous I had to wrestle at that time, you know, here he has this terrible disease. It's terminal. The lifespan that we were told at that time is generally in the early to mid teens. There was uh, a weekly infusion that could help his body, but the brain also deteriorates or, or we didn't know for sure. There's a percentage where that they don't have brain deterioration. Going back to what I spoke about before, I had to sit here and look at it and go, okay, I was at a place where I didn't think I could have any kids at all. Now I have three children and one has a terminal disease. And so how do you wrestle with that? How do you wrestle and go, I'm really sad and angry and grieving that my child is sick, but I could have not had him at all. (laughs) You know, that was one of those things I had to do in my brain. It's like, who am I to say that it's not fair that he's sick Mm. when I could have not had him at all. And like I said, sometimes you have to do these things in your brain in order to find meaning and make sense of it. Would that be a helpful thing though, for someone else to say to you in the middle of it? There's, there are a lot of things that I could tell you that are very unhelpful for someone to say to a parent of a child with special needs or a parent of a child with a medical condition, much less to a parent of a child with a terminal serious condition that are very, very unhelpful. Don't start with the words at least. Yeah. Or have you thought about that parent? Trust me, that parent has thought about those things. Nobody ever needs to say, have you thought about this medication? Have you thought about this strategy? Have you thought about, well, at least you, yeah, don't ever say that. Yeah. You know, when he's two years old and they're saying, well, he has a lifespan of 14, you, you literally count the years and you count how much time do we have? Can we save him? Can we find a cure? Can we fund a cure? You know, and that's one way to go. There are people who just say, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to love my child for these 14 years and accept that he's going to die. And I can't say that one is more right than the other. I was like, we're going to find a cure. We're, you know, and some of that, it takes up your time. And so it keeps you from feeling all that grief. There was an article 
was published in the New York Times in 2011 from a writer named Emily Rapp. And it's called Notes from a Dragon Mom. And it was around the time there was this book about being a tiger mom that you're going to you know, push your child and it's going to be amazing. And this was the flip side of like, well, this is what it's like to parent a child who's dying. She said, our grief is primal, unwieldy, and embarrassing. It's not something that people want to talk about. I have a couple quotes from that. She said, how do you parent without a net, without a future, knowing that you will lose your child bit by tortuous bit? Depressing, sure, but not without wisdom, not without a profound understanding of the human experience or without hard-won lessons forged through grief and helplessness and deeply committed love about how to be not just a mother or a father, but how to be human. Hmm. You know, that article really encapsulated a lot of the grief of like, how do you parent this child that is probably going to die? You don't want to die. Maybe you could try to save them. Yeah. It is a, um, a very strange grief. Yeah. How did it change how you approached parenting? It released me in a lot of ways. You know, there's the human response to it. Like I said, very intense grief. I mean, I would, I would lie on the floor and scream and cry and have conversations with the Lord, begging him to save him. And then at other times too, I'm like, you know, it really tests what you say you believe. That was a, a struggle and realization for me. Like, okay, I say, I believe this. I say, I believe that I'm going to heaven. And I believe that God is in control and that, you know, we are here for a short time. So I say, I believe that, but how does that look then in the life with a child who's sick and my other children? And it just released me in some ways to live what I said, I believed and to live like, this is not the end. It made me look at, is there meaning in this? In terms of my parenting, it really allowed me to go, this is but a short time. My job is to love these children and to look at their heart and not, you know, just their actions. Are they obeying? Are they, you know, doing these things? It's really about like, what is their heart posture towards the Lord, towards life, all of these things. Getting to know you and your youngest taught me something I should have known, or maybe I I knew like intellectually, but not, it hadn't really sunk in how little control we have as parents. And the fact that life is unpredictable. Like you have this very real understanding that you don't know how long your child will live. And most of us go around with our, you know, quote unquote, typical children. It just, it hit me that like, we are all going to know people that had no idea that they were going to lose a loved one because they just took it for granted. It made me realize one that we take credit for too many things that we shouldn't take credit for. Yeah. For um, as parents for you know, sure. Right. That, that our children turn this way or, you know, things as basic as what we do with our lives or how intelligent we are or how those are not, our things to take credit for. Yeah. How our children turn out medically, intellectually, socially, 
yes, we're called to do certain things out of our care for them and obedience to the Lord, but it's really just by the grace of God that they go one way or another. And it gave me a lot of humility and grace for other people in that who, who are we to say what their shoes are like, what it's like to walk in their life. I, when he was diagnosed, I would walk around the mall and, you know, there's only so many places you can go with three toddler boys (laughs) and it was McDonald's with the play area and the mall. And so I would walk around the mall and I thought, you know, people could look at me from the outside and go, Oh, look here. She's got three children and they're healthy and she gets to come to the mall during the day. She's not, you know, working for minimum wage and trying to, you know, sustain her family and what a life. It just shattered me from ever doing that about anybody. You have no idea what somebody's dealing with. You know, I would start crying in the grocery store when they're checking out because they would say, oh, he's so cute. He's going to play football when he grows up, isn't he? And I'm like, oh, you have no idea. It just gives you a lot of grace for other people's situations. Yeah. How about those times when people, you know, friends of yours, friends or acquaintances are talking to you? about something that's really hard for them and they catch themselves and say, I'm sorry, you know, you have it so much worse. I actually have had that happen a lot, especially like people concerned about their children. You know, I have friends whose kids have lots of different medical conditions from, you know, they find out they have juvenile diabetes or they have autism or various things, especially when case was young, they'd say, oh, I know it's not anything like what you're dealing with you know, my response was always anything with your child is an important, serious issue. There's no comparing, you know, what I'm dealing with and what you're dealing with when your child is suffering or your child has a challenge or your family is dealing with something. I mean, it's hard. You can't, I say it's just a different kind of hard. Yeah. I've really tried to stay away from any kind of hierarchy of grief. How has your faith changed by raising case. I mean, I will say there's a freedom in it. Um, sometimes I say, I wish everybody had a kid with Hunter syndrome. There is a freedom in a tangible reminder that you don't have control of things to look death in the face every day and go, how am I going to live today? There's a fine line between living in fear and living in humble respect for the reality of death. And, you know, sometimes he's up in his room and uh, he would come down every morning and sometimes he didn't come down right away. And it was the worst walk up the stairs because I knew he could not be alive. A lot of these kids die in their sleep you know, the reality, the gut check of like, I'm going to walk up the stairs and I hope my child is alive. Like I said, you could live in fear of that every day, or you could just go, you know what? I want to suck the marrow out of life with him and with my friends and with my family. It's beautiful and horrible at the same time. Speaking of Melissa's son case, I have never seen a child with more joy and love for the things that he enjoys. He doesn't filter his enthusiasm and he loves so big. 
I say a lot, I'm like, who am I to say I am more perfect than he is? He teaches me so much every day about this mask we put on that we're okay and really wrestling with grief for such a long period of time. You know, he's now been diagnosed for 13 years. So he's Mm -hmm. getting ready to turn 15. For people who don't know, he got in a clinical trial when he was three that sustained him for a long time. And there's a, a more recent grief of the fact that he is declining again. And so wrestling with that every day, but did you hear what Connie said about denial and how she thought, you know what? I don't think there's anything wrong with denial. It really serves people when it needs to serve people. Have you experienced that? There's been so much in the last three, four years of my life to grieve over, you know, I think denial in my marriage for 20 years, I could sit here and have regrets. I try to not really look at life through that lens of I'm not going to have regrets about it, but there was a lot of denial. It played out how it was supposed to play out with case. I've had denial in terms of when he got in this clinical trial you know, with experimental drugs, you really don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what it's going to do for them. And he was doing well for so long that you could call it denial. You call it hope. You know, there's a fine line between denial and hope that I thought, oh, he's going to survive. And then really just in the past three years, I've had to accept Mm -hmm. I can't live in that place anymore. It strikes me that even as we're having this conversation, Melissa is sitting in a hotel room in North Carolina, and they're there to meet with specialists for their clinical trial. And this visit was a difficult one. And Melissa is working through that grief on this particular day while we were recording. But your denial and hope gave you the energy to pursue really looking at ways to form a community. Talk a little bit about your work with Project Alive how you kind of came into that. God drug me into that kicking and screaming. I did not want to start a foundation. Kind of like I I have enough on my plate. I have three children. I was trying to keep working, even though we were in this clinical trial that was very demanding. It was just a place where I prayed a lot about it. And just all these pieces kept falling into place. And I'm like, dang it, I guess I'm supposed to do this. Uh, started a nonprofit um, now called Project Alive with several friends. And we started raising money and doing campaigns to raise awareness of Hunter syndrome, ended up raising um, several million dollars and funded gene therapy programs. We did a lot of work with companies that are doing research in this space. Now there's multiple clinical trials for Hunter syndrome I mean, it's very promising for the newer generations that are being diagnosed. It's actually now just been approved to be added to newborn screening. So amazing. Um, newborn screening is already live in, I think, three states for Hunter syndrome. Uh, and when they're treated very, very young, there's obviously a lot better outcome. You know, it's bittersweet in the course of the last three, four years as all this stuff As my personal life started falling apart, I had to totally set that aside. Melissa relays the work she did in creating the nonprofit and all she has done in the Hunter Syndrome community as if it's no big deal. Let me assure you that her work 
is a huge deal. She still does consulting on clinical trial designs and patient outcome measures, and she served as a patient representative to the FDA. And last year, she co-authored the book, Afraid of the Doctor, Every Parent's Guide to Parenting and Managing Medical Trauma. That was hard to, you know, when you've kind of birthed something, you want to see it come to its maturity. Having to just hand the baton to somebody and run the other direction because Mm -hmm. I had all this personal stuff going on. That was really, really hard. It's still doing amazing work. There's documentary films that they put together that tell a lot about Hunter syndrome and still raising money. Um, People can go to projectalive.org and um, see and learn more about it. And yeah, I'm really proud. I'm really proud of that. What has acceptance looked like for you? And maybe it's like a continual dance. It is. And it, and the hard part is there's overarching grief. My child has this disease. My child is probably going to die in my lifetime, if not in the next few years. And then there's these little griefs. Every time I have to go to an IEP meeting and talk about the skills my child has lost, Mm. or he's not talking as much. Uh, He just said, I love you, mom. And I can't remember the last time he said that, but I'm thankful he just said it dealing with the overarching grief. And I, what I call anticipatory grief, which is I'm anticipating that these things are going to happen. I'm anticipating that he's going to die. I'm anticipating that he's going to lose this. And then there's just all these little griefs and learning how to honor that and go, you know what? I'm just going to sit here and cry about that. I'll probably cry after this, after this talk. There's no point in acting like you have it all together. It's not, not having it together to sit and cry and pound the table about something that's hard and scary and sad. I know you've said a couple of times because it's such a heavy thing that in some ways you kind of hack your grief by, you know, allowing yourself this space to go there for a little amount of time, a movie. Yes. Or I, I heard you saying that in another episode about hacking your grief. I was like, did she get that from me? Because that's what I did. <laughs> I describe how I deal with it sometimes, or at least how I, how I used to was I would put the grief in a box. I'd close the box. I would put it on the top shelf of the closet. And when I was ready, I would take that box down and open it up. And um, for a long time, I couldn't even open the box because it would just vomit out. Like I couldn't watch Grey's Anatomy because it dealt with people dying. I couldn't, you know, watch anything like that. And then every once in a while I would pick a movie thinking, okay, I can deal with this. And it was, you know, just some heart wrenching. There was a Will Smith movie. um, uh, I love Will Smith. I didn't know that this movie Collateral Beauty I didn't know oh, that the movie was about that he had a child that died. Put in this Will Smith movie and I'm thinking, oh, I know it's in- emotional. And I thought I can, like you said, hack my grief. And then I get into the movie and it's about that he's had a child that's died. But yeah, I do that a lot. But now it's not as clean as it once was. Now there's just, there's grief about my son. There's grief about what existed in my marriage in the middle of that whole um, thing falling apart, my aunt died, who I was very, very close to. You know, there's been parenting challenges that were not expected. So there's grief there. And so 
the box doesn't sit on the shelf anymore. It's like sitting on the table half open all the time. How are you able to function healthily? You haven't been able to put the box away. What's helping you? Allowing myself space to grieve because, you know, I used to be, I had the list and I had to get the things done. You know, even when the things were done, they were still, I was expected to do more and more and more. And now I don't do that. I respect the fact that it takes time to grieve. I allow space around my therapy appointments. I go to therapy. (laughs) I allow space around cases appointments. There's also support being honest with your support system about what's going on. I've tried to get better at that. You're one of my support people. So I think, you know, like (laughs) I've tried to get better at about saying, Hey, I'm not okay. Yeah. And here's what's going on. And, um, I think that's good. And it, it sounds so stereotypical, but we all have that thing that was wounded in us as a kid. I think it comes up really strongly when we're dealing with a loss because we're figuring out like how we make meaning and how we bring value and how we fix things and realizing that what if you can't do that anymore? What if it doesn't work? For you, Melissa, you've always been the person that's been able to make the decision when no one else could. And what happens when you say, I I just can't do the thing right now. And is it going to be okay? One of the great things about therapy is really becoming comfortable with your boundaries. And what is your responsibility and what's not your responsibility being okay to have those boundaries. Tell me about the line. Tell me about the line. Cause I think it applies to all grief and there's this logo project alive a logo has a line in it. I'll link to the project alive site and you can see the logo there. It has a prominent line down the middle and that's purposeful. It's a way to mark the break between the before and the after. You are a different person before and after your child is diagnosed. And I think there are a lot of those lines. I think for parents of terminally ill children, that is the biggest and most definite line before there was a line of now they've died. You know, before that line, you know, in the before, there's like limitless possibilities. And this is what parenting is like. You don't really accept in your mind that children die. And after that, it's just a completely different life story. You can still find lots of beauty in it and you can still find purpose, but basically you kind of lay down a lot of these expectations that you had for life, that you had for your children. You know, it's not that different in the sense of when people talk about deconstruction of your faith, where you take things apart and you look at them and go, well, what did I believe about this and why? And is it really true? That kind of line of demarcation happens when your child gets diagnosed or, or you get a diagnosis. You do that same thing. You, you take it apart and go, what did I believe about life? What did I believe about parenting and living? And is that really true? You know, it can take a lifetime to put the pieces back together. But I think you know, one of the things that I worked on in therapy, and it's actually, there's a whole section in, in a book I had come out last year about identity. And I I now go, yeah, I was really working that out myself. I think it's helpful to other people. People have said it's helpful, but I was working it out myself about this issue of identity and who are you? 
what has made you, you, what do you care about? Um, what do you believe? What are aspects of you? And I feel like getting back to your identity is also how you prepare to move forward when terrible things happen. I'll go back to another quote um, from Emily Rapp. This is her son, Ronan. Ronan won't prosper or succeed in the way we have come to understand this term in our culture. He will never walk or say mama, and I will never be a tiger mom. The mothers and fathers of terminally ill children are something else entirely. Our goals are simple and terrible to help our children live with minimal discomfort and maximum dignity. We will not launch our children into a bright and promising future, but see them into early graves. We will prepare to lose them and then impossibly to live on after this gutting loss. And that's Mm. the thing is looking at how do I live on someday and who am I and how do I make his life wonderful? Lots of things to wrestle with. Getting back to knowing who you are and why you do what you do and why you believe what you believe is so core in that. I feel awkward transitioning from Melissa to Kat, Colby, and Emily. But maybe that's how it's meant to be. In this conversation, Kat, Colby, and Emily and I were all recording together at the same time. And it's one of the best times I have had recording. And there is something sort of strange and weird and beautiful to wrap up a season about grief with lots of laughter with some new friends that I made along the way. Here's our conversation. First of all, I want to know if you have had what kind of feedback you've received. Emily? I'm much more comfortable talking to strangers than I am real life people about personal things. I mean, I've had a lot of people be super kind on Twitter. Um, I have had a couple of real life people send me messages and just say like, thank you for explaining this. I feel like I didn't understand what was bothering you so much. And now I do. That has been really good. And it's been people who have been like kind, not like people who have been like, well, so what if people die? Yeah. But yeah, no, I I just have had a couple of real life friends. First of all, say it feels like having a conversation with you in real life to listen to you. And so like they were excited to listen because it felt like just like sitting and talking, which we haven't really Mm -hmm. got to do a lot. I had a friend from college share in a group that she is in and she forwarded to me a message that someone sent her that basically said like, this gave me words that I didn't know words that I didn't know so that I could tell people like where I was. And so I'm just like sending it to people like, thank you for sharing it with me. So it was like three layers of like back to back of, um, she sent it to my friend and my friend friend sent it to me and then I sent it to Amy. I'm glad that they recognized your voice. I didn't edit it like out of them being like, who is this person? My best friend since the seventh grade was like, she was like, yeah, I, she was like, I can tell that it's you talking about it after you've already processed it with someone else because you're very logical and metaphorical and not angry, um, but it sounds like talking to you. That's a good, that's good feedback. Have you gotten any hate mail? Like you said, you've gotten that. So um, I have pretty thick 
again. Like, I wrote in an SBC blog about voting for Kamala Harris because I feel like a woman should be in power. Everyone's already mad at me. I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> so you saying something, you, you, you doing sort of a spicy take, you've done this, right? Did we go down a long rabbit trail in which I looked up the article and the comments that Emily was talking about? Yes. Yes, we did. And I cut out most of that for time constraints. Just imagine lots and lots of laughter. I can talk about it. Like I'm not, especially like with, like for my friends who are survivors and stuff like that. Like I keep saying like people who are not carrying these things have got to start talking about it. Like it's their problem too. Yeah. And that's been my thing about COVID is that like, I understand that it's costly to Mm. take on burdens that aren't yours, but like also Mm. we're supposed to bear each other's burdens. Jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is. I cut off too much with this edit. Emily was quoting the Bible verse where Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So give it to me. That doesn't mean that like we only have to give things to Jesus. If we're going to look like Jesus to each other, then where something is light for us, we don't say, oh, that's not my problem. We say, oh, that's light for me. Let me, let me carry that. I'm going to say to my friend, like to my sisters and brothers who are survivors, like you can put that on me and I will carry it. Cause like, I don't have the burden that you have there. And like black and brown brothers and sisters. And, and, and so like, is it ridiculous for me to say, please care if I'm alive? If it could make me feel like I will be safe for you to wear a mask, like, why would you not do that? And so I think that's been part of the thing for me is that like, I've just sort of flipped the conversation. On the one hand, it's uncomfortable because it's about me and I would rather be like theoretical and about other people. But, but I also have been saying like, it's not like this is a new argument for me now that it applies to me. It is the opposite of the law and of the prophets and of Jesus for all of the burden to be on vulnerable people to make things right. See, now you're preaching preaching again. I love how um, Kat had said, like you were like the queen of metaphors. So many amazing I am good at a metaphor. metaphor. I love it. So I, I made a comment in the podcast and I want to throw it over to Kat and Colby. The idea of being able to show up as your authentic self mm. and have people hear you and have you not be a threat and a problem. You guys did not, any one of you three, you have had roadblocks to when you actually say what you're thinking. And what your real Mm -hmm. concerns are, even with trying to follow all the rules, it did not work out so well. You showed up as your authentic selves here Mm -hmm. in my metaphorical living room. Tell me how you feel about it. What kind of, what kind of feedback have you had? One thing just that made what you were just saying made me think is I've been sharing with Colby just in the past, maybe week, I've become aware of a few different things that recording this podcast revealed to me about myself (laughs) and not just about myself, but of sort of some of the effect of the trauma on me. You know, I joked with Amy after you recorded with Colby, oh, now you know why they villainized me (laughs) because he's become so kind and gentle and sensitive, like in good ways. When I listen back to myself on the podcast, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so dramatic. Like I see how they villainized me. And then I have this moment of like, 
oh my gosh, that is the accuser. Mm-hmm. There's, I think, two words. This is what we were hearing it from mm-hmm. this couple who were talking, like two words in the Bible that are used to describe Satan. Like there's Satan and the devil. And the word one, the, one of the words for one of those means accuser. And one of the words for the, the word for the other one means splitter. Mm-hmm. So many of these stories are uh, where abusive leaders are subtly or not subtly splitting a couple from each other. Hmm. Like they're undermining Mm -hmm. Colby's ability to trust me while also undermining my ability to hear and really face what Colby was going through. Hmm. And the accuser, and this is something that just felt really new and very visceral for me in the past week was, Hmm. oh my goodness, I think part of what is at least coming to light when I listen to our voices back, right? I go... Hmm. Oh gosh, I'm like, I know I'm a four in the Enneagram. I'm, I've always known <laughs> I'm emotional, but like, I want to like reclaim that. And I'm not quite there yet, but I want to reclaim it as like being a strong woman in a more conservative environment has some challenges. Yeah. Um, well, and also that like being emotive and emotional is often like, and I mean, this is something that I was, cause I'm not very emotional naturally. And so it was like, girly in a negative way yeah oh yeah and so i have some like internalized misogyny Mm -hmm. i'm not emotional and so women are dumb because they don't think yeah and thanks to endometriosis i became very emotional and so it is not bad to have emotions Mm -hmm. and it's also not only female colby when you were listening did you think oh no this is not sound the way i hoped it would not a bit Um, Are you talking specifically about Kat? Yeah. Like, were you worried? When she's talking, I'm thinking about just how, and I've told her this, and I maybe have said this on the podcast already, but how her courage and the way that she was so outspoken, a lot of that is kind of listening to her own emotions about it. So much of living in a spiritually abusive environment, like we're just trained to kind of disconnect from how we're feeling about a certain situation. And so Kat was listening to that and tapping into it and communicating it. And I was not, and it took, it took a lot of her courage to rub off on me and the clarity that she was seeing things to help make sense of my own experience and and my own emotions Mm -hmm. that I wasn't being honest with myself about. I think if you listen back, even like episodes without yourselves in it, some of our story, Women who are talking have some pretty strong opinions. And I just think there's just something about it, especially when it's a family member, like your spouse that you love. I'm going to say the thing strongly. My husband is much more reserved. And it is a very easy narrative that unhealthy cultures have with to to play the marriage card. Yeah. Yes. You know what? They're not here anymore because they need to work on their marriage. Right. The wife was the crazy spouse. And I love how Colby Mm -hmm. at a certain point, you're like, Hey, I would like to add my voice right? because you've known what the narrative has been too. That says Mm -hmm. it's really just cat's problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, you know, you showing up and and adding your voice says nobody made me do this. Mm -hmm. I have a voice here. And I'd love for you to share about how you actually lost your voice. Mm -hmm. And found it. And I brought my trusty manual with me. Wade Mullen, something's <laughs> not right. 
I just felt like I was reading what was happening to me page for mm-hmm. page and just feel like everything was underlined. But his bit on dismantling of the self, I feel like over the last three years, I was experiencing a very, at times it was really punctuated dismantling, but at other times it was kind of a chipping away of the self. Yeah. Taking a kind of criticism that feels like it's coming out of left field and is so heightened and having never experienced that kind of criticism, honestly, before, and I've lived in really honest community. And so it was like, I've heard in the past, um, there's some people pleasing here. Um, so maybe that's just, I'm now a pastor and the, the stakes are higher. And so this struggle would be intensified. And so I just need to take it. Mm. You know, I've put on the big boy pants of this job and yeah, pastoral ministry is really hard. But then you, you layer on top of that, a boss, a lead pastor who is your supervisor, who continually is looking over your shoulder metaphorically and just giving you this sense of you're not good enough. Even though there were at times very clear words of encouragement, when I look back, I can see those and I can take those in, but it's hard to believe any of them Hmm. because of the disproportionate weight of these other. Yeah, the criticism. Yeah, of these just words about my character and a lot of suspicion about me as a dad and as a husband, just my trustworthiness as a pastor. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like I, like there wasn't a whole lot of evidence like that he was bringing. It was just a, a lot of weight and a lot of heat to the conversation without a whole lot of substance. Dismantling of self happened and punctuated and then kind of slowly in other ways, whenever the excommunication finally came. Baptists don't excommunicate, they disfellowship. (laughs) We're wrong about that. When I found out that the church was a Baptist church, I had so many polity issues. (laughs) Like, I mean, I was upset for how you were treated, but also I was like... So Emily's calling a foul. She's calling a technical or something on the whole thing. Well, like if you were... Well, yeah, we're out of order. I'm going to be very Baptist for a second. One of the like central things of Baptist theology, which is like the foundation of all of our polity, is confessional immersive baptism and the priesthood of the believer. Mm-hmm. I think that so many of our problems is that we don't actually believe in the priesthood of the believer. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because if we did, like it would not matter, it would not matter what someone's gender was. We would have polity that reflected every person is fully indwelled with and gifted by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. If we're going to believe that there are people set apart from God mm-hmm. to have special authority from God, cool, do that. But we need to stop calling ourselves Baptists right. and pretending to be autonomous. <laughs> I should do like a bonus thing on like Baptist policy with Emily. I could do hours. Uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Um, Snook, we'll give you an honorary doctorate. Do not give me an honorary doctorate. I need to get back to Colby. He had told me right around that time of excommunication, you found yourself unable to really speak physically. Yeah. I was just about to get there. We lost not only kind of this 
internal sense of self or personally, but there was this external support that was completely cut off. Yeah, we were so alone and so isolated. We had had family coming. I was on the phone a lot uh, with people just trying to relay what was happening and trying to get their wisdom and input, but just found myself stuttering. And like, had you ever stuttered before? I mean, admittedly, I'm a slower processor, but this was like super slow. And like I could, I found myself just like searching for words. I couldn't find words. Yeah, almost like a metaphor for the whole experience, like not being able to find the words for what I was experiencing. And then my body was like, okay, here you go. You're not going to be able to speak. My wife's parents came down just to help with the kids. And I remember just having a conversation with my father-in-law and him being really kind, just giving a lot of space. I was just trying to articulate myself. I just was like blubbering. Like I just couldn't like come up with really uh, clear words. Yeah, there are days that are still like more like that. Um, it's sort of slowly gotten better. And in a lot of ways, I think this podcast is a bit of a culminating, not that healing is done, yeah, but a culminating of telling the story and telling it again. And... Like we said in the last episode, like we felt forced to go public with the story, to, to tell the story. Actually, they, in, in taking everything public uh, in this unjust kind of way, forced us to go public with our story. I mean, choosing to do the podcast. Yeah. We're making a choice in how we tell the story and where True. and when. And yeah that's empowering. You were asking about what feedback we've gotten. Things are happening. It is like a cult. There are people who want to get out and don't know how, but there have been people who've reached out to us just this week and said variations of, it felt like I was looking at a puzzle and nothing made sense. And then hearing your story, just everything fell into place Mm -hmm. and got so clear to where the things you're saying lined up like timeline wise <laughs> with the pieces we had, yeah. but we're just mm-hmm. so crafted. We just found out today that the elders never told the congregation that they'd actually remo- removed our severance. And so all these people for almost a year have been going, oh, well, at least they gave Colby and Kat three months severance. We found out there Wait was a also- second. Was Sorry? that not was that not in the financial report that was given to the church at a regular business meeting? <laughs> yes, Emily. <laughs> financial report. Seriously. I wish you could have seen Colby punch his fist into the air when he declared financial reports. You'll just have to imagine it. So people reached out to us and said these things, right? The pieces are coming together. Oh my goodness. I was terrified to reach out to you. I thought I would get in trouble. But I am so sorry that you were hurting and completely abandoned. So there are people who are listening to the podcast and going, whoa, whoa, wait. Okay. I can see that, you know, the church I'm in or the Wilkins old church or whatever, that there are pastor problems. Like there's problems with the leadership, but I don't know if I'd go so far as to say spiritual abuse. So could we talk a little bit about like, not even necessarily defining it here because it's a little sticky, but even just going... Do your research. Like there's, you know, do a little reading. I think people don't understand. Like there is a difference between somebody just making a few poor choices. Yeah. Yeah. And taking ownership. Um, of yeah. In ownership. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in order for it to be defined as spiritual abuse, it's generally a pattern. 
It's a pattern mm-hmm. of behavior. Yes. And generally somebody has power yep. over someone else some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Positional power, financial mm-hmm. power, yeah. uh, relational power. And it's done using the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, someone's harmed using Bible verses, using like mm-hmm. their relationship with Christ. Something to do with their faith mm-hmm. is weaponized. Yeah. And it's in a, in a pattern of behavior. This would be like that number of meetings Colby is called into yeah. over and over again, telling him he's missing the mark mm-hmm. and he could never do enough mm-hmm. to make it right. There's a difference between like, I have power over my child, but if I yell at her today, I'm not abusing her if it's not a pattern. And then I guess if I'm also like repairing with her mm-hmm. and, and looking, you know, reflecting and taking ownership, mm-hmm. someone who has any sort of power, who's using that power to either actively harm mm-hmm. or not using their power to actively protect. Mm-hmm. So there's like a, an abuse that's passive as well. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's important, right? Because we tend to think, oh, well, of course, spiritual abuse is like, a person beating another person and being like, God wants you to obey. Like that's such a stereotypical perspective. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. one thing that I want to say, and I really, it feels like important to say as part of our story is that as we're encouraging people to educate themselves and do research and just explore like what this looks like Mm -hmm. is that in that meeting with our lay elder, the one with those friends, you know, who um, were, we were then called Flanders for having them present. I said to this guy who'd been our good friend, I said, if you think there's even a 0.2% chance that we're right, mm-hmm. please learn about spiritual abuse. And you know what he did? He waved his hand in the air and went, oh, that doesn't, that, that's not in the Bible. Spiritual abuse isn't in the Bible. That's not a Bible concept. For people that are listening, because you can't see, Emily's like hardly able to like hold herself back. She's like, Emily so badly wanted to interject here, but she had to wait until Kat finished this thought. Three weeks or a few weeks later, when Colby had the phone conversation with him, where Colby calls him right after we had been out of touch and was like, dude, what is repentance? Like, we're Mm -hmm. really confused. Mm -hmm. He told us, right, that it means recanting your concerns. Then he said, hey, Colby, there's this article I'd really love you to read. It's been going around the elders and elders' wives. We found it really helpful. It's about emotional blackmail. All that to say, the irony, right, where he goes, oh, um." Spiritual abuse is not in the Bible. I don't care to know anything. I don't want to learn anything. I don't care about that. And then three weeks later, to use the word emotional blackmail, I want to say that both of those are in the Bible. But okay, Emily, I'm going to hear your thoughts. When we say like, oh, hey, this thing isn't an issue in the Bible, well, like, first of all, that's not true. Like the prophets would like a word. They talk quite a bit about here's the responsibility of the religious leaders and and here's how they are abusing their power, misusing their power, mm-hmm. failing in their power. Like if you just look at the story of Eli and his sons, like maybe they didn't have the same word for it, but also like it's ancient Hebrew. Like they don't have the same word for a lot of things. The idea that like the Bible is prescriptive for everything is so harmful in so many situations. Yeah. And for those of us that went to Bible college and took methods of Bible study, we know that's not the way it works. Like I'm going to pretend to be Karen Swallow Pryor for a second. (laughs) Reading the Bible through genre 
it is so important because we will read a novel and say, okay, here's what this is about. And the thing that we say that it's about will never appear in the novel, right? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. like- If it's a good novel. If it's a good novel, right. So these guys would be perfectly fine saying the Chronicles of Narnia is about Jesus. So we read novels by genre and we say, okay, like here's here's the thing that this is telling us. Like it's not telling us to do all of the things that, this, right. that these people do. It, right. It's giving us a principle, an idea. And so the vast majority of scripture is narrative. And so if we could read it narratively, then we see that it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive and imaginative, and it's supposed to be generative to us. Okay, what what is what is yeah. wrong here? What is right here? What does God say about what these people do? And then how do we mirror that in a generative, redemptive way in our own lives? And so to read narrative as being prescriptive is first of all, bad eighth grade English, but also terrible hermeneutics. And the idea that the Bible doesn't speak to spiritual abuse, if you don't want to use that terminology, like, fine, whatever. The Bible doesn't speak to vaccines. The Bible Bible doesn't speak to cars. The Bible doesn't speak to Republicans and presidents (laughs) and Congress and so many other things. What the Bible does do is it tells us, what God's posture is towards people, especially in relation to how they are situated around each other, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and the consistent posture of God is that people who are above are responsible to the people who are below and accountable before God for that. And so you want to say like the Bible doesn't talk about abuse, like whatever, but the Bible does say that God holds those who are in positions of authority or strength or any of those things in relation to the people around them in special accountability because God has a posture towards the lowly, towards the weak, towards the hurt of bringing them in and lifting them up. And so to say like the Bible doesn't speak about spiritual abuse. Okay, fine. Let's just stipulate that. What does the Bible say about the responsibilities of those who have religious power to those who are entrusted to them by God? The posture of the posture of scripture sure is not. They are never questioned and it's fine for them to hurt people. Never, Mm -hmm. ever. The most truly meaningful, beautiful, like moment that I hold on to every day that happened in this whole process for us was we took this trip uh, in, it was before we were excommunicated, but we had just found out we'd lost our severance. We were in the Pacific Northwest with Colby's family and we are just, I mean, in shambles, like in shambles. Mm, yeah. There was beautiful, it was like the contrast of the beauty all around us and just the brokenness inside us. And I went on what I like to affectionately now call my rage hike where I was really mad and it was about something unrelated to the church situation. And I just told Colby, I'm going to go on a hike and just, you're not going to hear from me for like an hour. So don't worry. (laughs) So I was in flip flops and I was like, had a purse with me. Like it was not the hiking type of scenario, but I went on a three mile up mountain hike in the Pacific Northwest 
and around like Cannon Beach area. And there are all these dead trees everywhere. So there's these massive, like the big, 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 I don't know if they're redwood, but they're dead and they're decaying and they're just everywhere. And I'm having to kind of go around them and I'm crying and I'm angry and I'm asking God, why, why, why? And it wasn't because I didn't trust him. It was because I did trust him, right? That I could ask him why. I was kind of going, God, like speak to me, please. I just want to know why this happened. Even if there's something you can tell me. And I'm seeing all these dead trees. And I took pictures of them actually with my phone because I was like, that's what I feel like, God. I'm the dead tree. Like, why did you put me here? And I'm praying and I'm yelling and I'm crying. I get to this clearing and there's this plaque and it's kind of old and weathered and I can barely read it. But it basically said the early explorers of this area of the country wrote in their travel journals about all the dead trees everywhere. And that since then, there's now a law in the state of Oregon to protect the dead trees because, quote, they jumpstart new life on the forest floor and they provide habitats for the animals and they enrich the soil for right for new life. It was this moment where I just said, God, I hear you. Like you're using this death to jumpstart new life in my heart mm-hmm. and in my marriage and in our future ministry and in our family. And hopefully God willing, please in the church that we left, it was just this so clear moment of him going, yes, this is death. Like it is dead and I'm going to use it to jumpstart new life. The hike ends. I'm near the end and I hear these little, it sounds like it's like a Disney movie, but I hear these little birds tweeting from a bush and I go and explore. And they're these little, like they're still partially fuzzy, but they have sort of feathers and they're these little birds like learning to fly. And they're just all kind of scattered on these ferns. And they're just like tweeting and trying to fly and falling over. (laughs) And it was, again, just that moment of like the struggle of growth, right? And new life. And so... And this is the moment that Kat shows us that she has this tattooed on her arm. So it's a bird and a ferns and dead dead wood. That was just the moment where I was like, God, I'm putting this on my arm. So I never forget, even when I feel like there is no life. I'm never going to be able to describe that for the listeners. And then she removed her sleeve. (laughs) But all that to say, the like, just that death from life, that is what I hold on to every day. And that Mm -hmm. sort of describes just where where I'm at, at least now, right? That's part of where we're finishing off the podcast Mm -hmm. of like, where are we at now? And what's going on? And after leaving our church in Kansas City, I I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They were saying I was disqualified to serve as an elder. I didn't agree with what they were saying, nor had they actually told me that to my face. And so there was this sense of like, I, there's this call to Jesus is, is thicker than what they can like cast down in a moment. It was honestly through a connection that Kat and I had made that we yeah knew someone in Orlando um, and they worked at um, a church here in town and they just made a couple of phone calls. And a friend that we met in seminary her husband um, is the lead pastor of a church here in Orlando, and he made some calls and invited me to come on staff. He offered me a job to serve as a minister, but I think more importantly, he quickly heard part of our story and would come to hear lots more of it and and be just a really safe person. Offered the position to be a place of healing and to regain faith in the church. So you're pastoring... In some role right now? 
Yeah, it's it's more or less a youth pastor kind of role. I would say it it definitely is uncomfortable. Um, to go back to your other question, it's uncomfortable leaning back into ministry in the local church so quickly um, when I have a lot of questions about authority, a lot of questions about power and the posture of a pastor. Yeah, some burning theological questions that have been kicked up. It feels like a wilderness kind of experience. And it's interesting to minister or to be to minister out of that wilderness kind of um, experience. So I'm actually going back to school. A lot of the experience of this previous church, I, I've lived through um, mm. spiritual abuse before I knew what it was. Mm. And now I, I want to go to school to get a counseling degree um, to not only understand my own experience better, mm. but to to be that image of being a wounded healer um, as, is one that has just stuck out to me. And I want, I want to not transmit the pain that I've experienced, but be transformed in it. And much like I want to be one of those sunflowers. Yeah. Um, hey, look at Colby with the metaphor. Before the podcast, I was like, I need to summon my inner Emily. And, um, and- <laughs> yeah, we were like, we need to come up with really good metaphors. And like Emily snook this thing. Do you want me to tell you how to be really good at metaphors? Oh, do tell. Um, give me all your secrets. Okay. It, it's super complicated. Are you ready? I'm ready. Read lots and lots of stories. Um, there it is. <laughs> Got it. In this whole, in the aftermath of this experience and healing, like I have connected to art mm-hmm. with so much more. It's, uh, there's just more color, the story line and the, the drama of it is just so much more gripping because I, I see ties and I, mm-hmm. I feel the weight of, yeah. yeah, just the betrayal. There's a lot of messy stories mm-hmm. in artists' lives that are like really yeah. interesting. Yeah. And there's conflict in every good story, right? And so yeah. it's like if you yeah. either don't have pain in your life, I mean, everyone has pain. So it's less about whether you have pain mm-hmm. and more about whether mm-hmm. you've leaned into it mm-hmm. and uh, let yourself sit in it for a bit. Mm-hmm. That makes the difference between, can I see myself in these stories of pain, even if I'm so different? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangled Faith Podcast. This episode is made possible by my membership community. They get special perks like a Discord group and bonus audio. Last week and this week, I had so much audio, I'm sharing what couldn't fit here as a bonus audio with my membership community. If you're interested, you can check it out at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. I'll also have a link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be so helpful to me if you would share it with a friend and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. If you can't get enough of Untangled Faith, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as Untangled Faith. And on Twitter, I'm Faith Untangled. This wraps up our season on grief, but I'll be back over the next several weeks with some conversations about funny church stories, and I'll share some interviews with Mary DeMuth, Glenn Packiam, and Sheila Gregoire. And later in April, watch for an episode in which some friends and I unpack what we've been taught and what we've learned about what it means to follow God's ways with money. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in your ears soon.